0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just
1: turned four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday home time. Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six o'clock. Today, a chat with... Port Phillip Baykeeper, Neil Blake. And then we have the academics. We've got What Pine Gap Means for War Preparations and War with Professor Richard Tanter. All You Need to Know About Agroecology with Professor Miguel Altieri. Prospects for Peace in Colombia with Associate Professor Geoffrey Browett and yet another professor, Palestinian-Australian Basam Ali But first, let's have Professor Kevin Healy.
2: A week, Jane, listener, when a bitterly disappointed Lord Rupert of Wapping was forced to announce, in a few pars on a left-hand way back of the book page, that a Black Lives Matter rally had sadly not erupted into violence with left-wing thugs attacking neo-fascists and the oh, sorry the constabulary. Sensibly, they're not wasting valuable editorial space reporting on what was said or why it was held. Save that for important rallies like the lobby, or the CFA, or a handful of people opposing public transport improvements, anything that shows just how the electorate got the last state election so horribly wrong, or the Labour Day, or Mumba March, or Anzac, or for that matter, the great department store's great Christmas parade, people who are not so evil, the fascists are forced to disrupt their gatherings in the interests of the Union Jack, and the other bits that comprise our proud national emblem. On which, as Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country Big Supremo evaporated into history, the new Big Supremo to raise a named that model of tact and diplomacy Boris Johnson off. The new tact and diplomacy supremo, and despite his odd diplomatic comment about the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world like, Hillary is like a sadistic nurse in a mental hospital, serving it up to Hillary, the U.S. of, and psychiatric patients in one fell swoop. He deigned to contact his country's successor as the world's great communist, talked to the U.S. Army Secretary of World State John Kerry for the rich, With John saying, Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country and the U.S. have had a special relationship. We have a special relationship with all countries who do what we tell them to do. At this, the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo here back in the last dark ages puffed out his little chest. I am the man of steel, I I really am. And as the consequences of the Coalition of the Killing continue to explode across the Middle East and Europe, hundreds were slaughtered in a possible attempted coup in Turkey, leading to the arrest of pretty much the entire judiciary, who must have donned train-killer outfits and taken to the streets. Sadly, the arrest of the judiciary means there is no judiciary to try the judiciary and all the other guilty parties. Big Supremo and lover of liberty, freedom, and democracy, heard of up again, declared, Thus, I have been forced to judge all these cases individually, and I have determined they are all guilty. Prepare the gallows. And in case you're wondering why I said possible attempted coup, there are some cynical types suggesting heard him up again, orchestrated the whole thing himself. But the week that was would never suggest that. Because as we said, he is a true lover of liberty, freedom and democracy, which brings us to all the other true lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy. Let's use our very own big supremo, Malcolm Tunnabula's typical. We call on parties to respect the democratic institutions Institutions. That should resolve the issue. But no, no, let's go to the world leader, the exemplar of liberty, freedom and democracy. The president reiterated the U.S. arms unswerving support for the democratically elected civilian government. Uh, then how come you supported the lot running around with swastikas in Ukraine even before the democratically elected civilian government had been overthrown? Sometimes the people get democracy wrong. Oh, like Chile electing Allende? Perfect example. The little bald-headed bloke also gave his successors here a bit of advice about that appalling Hunson it would be stupid to, uh, to isolate her and her uh, her supporters. It, it really would. Uh, attacking her in her first parliamentary stint only made her stronger. It, it really did. Can't recall who did attack her, but we certainly know who didn't. He just pinched her policies. And as for making her stronger, maybe he's forgotten but she lost her seat at the next election. While on appalling, see Brody Boy made good, Eddie McGuire, aren't you rich? Explained he was on heavy painkillers when he caused indigenous footballer Adam Goods much pain by calling him a monkey. Well, King Kong, same thing. So that explains that. Poor Eddie, heavy pain. And we can all empathise with Eddie because whenever we have severe pain, our thoughts immediately run to racism, homophobia, sexism. They're listed on the side effects warning. May cause racism. Seek medical advice if racism persists. Nothing to do with Eddie's innate nature. And I would never suggest what some people suggest, because to be a class traitor, you need to have an awareness of class identity in the first place. And where does the appalling Hoonson connection come in, I hear you saying? Well, Eddie also described his close mate, the footy show Sam Moron, whose hysterical humour is based on demeaning those he considers below his intelligence and social and physical Adonis status which is pretty well everyone except him, as unique, highly intelligent, and highly respectful, a deep thinker whose opinions are based on Wait for it, it's what Eddie said on scholarship. Then again, Eddie thinks calling a black footballer a monkey is intelligent, sharply witty, good for a laugh. But if scholarship applies to Sam Moron, and here's the loose connection, then that appalling hoon son should be a world-renowned, much-published professor of philosophy. When Eddie and the boys had a big laugh about drowning a woman in icy water, we can but imagine the pain he must have been in. Welcome balance on racism. Malcolm reminded us yesterday, true blue was he has a non-discriminatory immigration policy, a non-discriminatory humanitarian policy. We do not discriminate against all those people on Nauru, Manus, Christmas Island. We treat them all equally. Down here in Lord Rupert of Wapping's version of a socialist dystopia, we should all give thanks. There was a period of light, of renaissance. Give thanks, and if we believe in the dear baby Jesus bit, say a prayer every night for former state big supremo Jeff Mouth and then economic guru Alan Stockdill after the announcement that our electricity prices are now the highest not just in True Blue Aussie but in the whole world. What Pride! We hold the world electricity prices record. If only utility prices could be an Olympic event. Indeed, it's worth lobbying for the 2020 Games. And imagine how high they'd be but for foot in mouth and stock deal, but for the efficiency of the private sector. Imagine how astronomical they'd be if our fossil power was still in the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector, not benefiting us all through market forces on the great level playing field of world's best practice competition policy and to think there were sceptics who questioned Jeff and Alan's promise that prices would get lower and lower once they flogged off this drain on the public purse. Eat humble pie, sceptics, if you can afford to cook it. Not unrelated, the banks have addressed the odd criticism that's been levelled at them by establishing their own inquiry into bank tellers, the poor maligned victims in the boardrooms knowing bank corruption rip-offs exist only at the very bottom. And this final report we have handed to the independent inquiry shows how lily-white we are, uh, but 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 they haven't even started meeting yet. And this final report will eliminate that unnecessary need, truncate their work, save their valuable time. And don't forget, tellers are the public face of our great institutions. Don't forget further, the public pays a fee to be served by these people, and thus we are, as usual, thinking only of the public. Uh, but, but people don't see the tellers as the problem, other than having to pay to be served. Yes, misleading statistics, I'm afraid, distorted by the not insubstantial lodging a complete fee. Oh, well, at least they're trying to address the problems. Good luck to them. And again, not totally unrelated, amid the excitement of a visit from the US OBS, a heartbeat from big supremo Joe Biden, his time not much longer, the US OBS Chamber of Profits in True Blue Aussie utilised the occasion to deliver a timely warning to True Blue Aussie that a budget measure to make it easier for our tax office to identify tax dodging, sorry, legal tax minimisation by overseas companies, is unnecessary and will Impede the flow of foreign investment into true blue Aussie. True blue Aussie tax laws are sufficiently robust, and the new laws will create uncertainty. Right now, we have the certainty we can dodge, uh, evade, no, uh, what you say, minimize our taxes. Uh, and we all know the last thing business needs is uncertainty. Doubtless Joe would have had a few words in a few attentive ears. And the Chamber's spot on. We all know how sufficiently robust our laws are at preventing tax evasion. Uh, sorry, again, legal tax minimisation. Finally, a new study has shown that 80% of men do not believe there is gender bias and pay inequality in the workforce. And only 4% of young men under 25 believe there is a pay gap between men and women in their industry. Got a feeling a parallel survey of women just might come up with a different result. Then again, the blokes might be right, because I can recall back in 1972, I think it was, when the union stroke women won the equal pay case. The bench must have given caring employers a, a bit of time to phase it in, although... 44 years sounds pretty generous good afternoon
1: and that was honorary professor kevin healy the role of the port phillip bay keeper involves working with schools government researchers business and the community to protect port phillip bay neil blake is the port phillip bay keeper and has been a somewhat irregular contributor to Tuesday home time over many years, and we intend to make that contribution more regular so Neil, a good news story first, a well deserved award for a colleague of yours
3: yeah Geo Fitzpatrick as um, our the echo center's youth wildlife ambassador a fantastic young man, and uh, he's been uh, designing nest boxes for displaced species in in the St Kilda-Alwood area, species that have been displaced. Yeah, so he's doing remarkable work ever since he's about 10 years old and he has an encyclopaedic brain about the local, if not Australian, ecology. But, um, yeah, so it's extraordinary just how... Uh, much uh, knowledge he's amassed and and the uh, initiatives that he's implemented over his brief uh, period as a a young naturalist and a few exciting things like he discovered an intertidal spider at Point Ormond that hadn't been seen in Victoria since 1902. That was about a year ago that he found that.
1: What's an intertidal spider? Well, it's
3: a spider that actually lives in the intertidal zone. So actually uh, What's so special about that? in a sack underwater. Well, uh, what's so special about it? I suppose there's many things, really. The fact that, uh, you know, we just see the bay and think of it as a big dam out there and we know, we know everything because people in suits have actually recorded everything before, haven't they? And so we have special places called sanctuaries or national parks, you know, that are supposed to preserve biodiversity. But uh, all along, though, there's a whole lot going in on right across our landscapes and our seascapes that, uh, that we still don't know about. And it's really inquisitive and curious young minds that actually bring that sort of stuff to light and, and really help to shape the future.
1: Tell me about some of the species that he's been helping.
3: Uh, well, um, one in particular, I guess uh, he, he designed a, a nest well, not actually a box, you can think of a box being a cubicle sort of thing, but uh, this particular one for micro bats, uh, which are the, the little bats that eat half their body weight in insects a night, uh, is uh, basically uh, a PVC tube or pipe about uh, 100 millimetres across and maybe you know half a metre long, which he um, attaches to trees. And he has some carpet inside it so that the bats can go in from up the bottom through through a little hole in the bottom and uh, cling onto the carpet in there. And I'm not sure what the actual um, the word is for a group of bats in a <laughs> in a PVC pipe, but uh, they're quite comfortable in there and uh, they uh, live very happily there. It only took about two weeks, I think, when the first one that he put in a tree in St Kilda Botanical Gardens was actually occupied by the bats, other nest box um, works that have been or studies that have been going on sometimes it'll take 18 months before the bats will actually uh, occupy a nest box so that was certainly a seal of approval.
1: And why do they actually need a nest box? What's wrong with the natural environment?
3: These are mainly species that will actually um, nest in hollows in trees so you need your older growth trees to provide those kind of habitats. Sometimes they might actually uh, be under rough bark or whatever but again you still need particular types of trees that provide that kind of cover. So uh, (coughs) this is a way of just increasing rapidly the amount of accessible habitat for for these species.
1: And are they in danger?
3: That's a good question. Uh, There's still a lot we don't know about. There are quite a number of microbat species in Victoria, but uh, they do play an important role. So regardless of whether they're endangered or not, it's actually good to have them uh, comfortably uh, living in urban areas the bats will be interesting really in particularly when you think about climate change and uh, migration or movement of species like mosquitoes for example that uh, could actually be uh, transferring viruses and things so it's nice to have uh, the front line species that are actually turning them into food
1: how different are they to larger bats
3: uh, what you mean like the fruit bats or mm, the,
1: fruit, well, the, the bats that we know of the fruit bats
3: they use echolocation, so when they're flying, and to capture their food in flight as opposed... To, and so it's basically they're carnivores. So I don't know that they get into salads at all, Jan, but uh, they could be the odd one that does that. You never know. <laughs> Some of those hippie bats out there. But uh, <laughs> generally speaking, that that's the, the, they do actually eat uh, animals, flying animals, not birds. So. <laughs> How big are they? Oh, they're only quite small, actually. Uh, you know, perhaps... Um, their body would be probably no bigger than a mouse, possibly even a bit smaller, some of the species, yes. Yeah, so. And
1: what's their natural predator?
3: They can be eaten, I think, by some owls and a few uh, birds like that, but uh, generally speaking, they wouldn't uh, be uh, generally threatened by too many species no. uh, because they're tucked away in, uh, safely during the yeah. day in, in relatively inaccessible places. Actually, I don't think we actually mentioned what the GEOs Award uh, Yes, so uh, as a result of Gio's astounding work, he was uh, successful in being awarded the individual award at the World Environment Day event um, conducted by the United Nations Association of Australia, which is really terrific to see uh, a young person uh, pick up a national award. Uh, It really augurs well for his future, and um, we can only... uh, imagine the sort of good work that he's going to go on to do in the future.
1: A good thing to have on your CV.
3: It wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, particularly uh, at his age, he's 19 now. and you know, So uh, the good thing about GLO is he's a fantastic communicator as well, very down-to-earth and humble sort of young man. Uh, so uh, people just love him.
1: Great. Yeah. Let's talk about your role as the, the Port Phillip Baykeeper and your interaction with the river keeper
3: it's really a terrific and growing relationship I suppose between the the river keeper there's also a Werribee river keeper in connected with the Port Phillip Bay so uh, uh, we've been uh, collaborating and discussing how we might increase the um, potential for uh, collaborative projects especially as the catchments that feed into the bay are really critical to the future of it so in my my mind if, if the the rivers are being looked after, then the bays are being looked after. Uh, there are, of course, things that go on in the bay which will have an impact on it, but it's the overall impacts of the catchment on a, on a daily basis, though, that are going to incrementally uh, affect the health of the bay. So uh, yeah, we've been fortunate, actually. The Eco Centre put together a uh, submission to the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation to uh, develop the concept of a waterkeepers network Port Phillip Bay. So we've got some small seed funding to do some conceptual work and discussions with a whole range of government agencies that are related to waterways management litter and water quality, environmental quality, to see if we can develop a viable network of waterkeepers for each catchment that that is around the bay. A, A communications mechanism where each of those catchments and advocates for them will be actually working together to come up with um, effective means of uh, caring for water quality. So uh, that's a pretty exciting thing that's just starting to happen in the next month.
1: There must be a fair few rivers that finish up in the, the bay because it's a fairly big bay, isn't it?
3: Well, yeah, that's right. And uh, there's quite a number of creeks, uh, you know, the, the little river and uh, Coralright Creek laverton creek uh, and obviously the maribyrnong Maribonong is a significant catchment area too which has have has a big influence on the bay so yeah they, that's going to be a really interesting and exciting uh, exercise in really just finding out identifying who are the passionate advocates for each in, within each of those catchments and how can we all start talking together in a positive way and set up some momentum particularly too. Engage with land managers such as local government who have a day to day responsibility for what, storm water and that sort of stuff, and also the other water agencies such as Melbourne Water that have a, a very big responsibility as well.
1: do they have filters maybe filters not the right word on the drains now leading into the is it going to the river from the streets?
3: There's not too many that actually um, in the ordinary stormwater pits that you'll see in a gutter on a street. Basically the intent of those is to allow the water to escape as quickly as possible so any filter's going to slow that down and could cause localised flooding although there are some designs that need to be perhaps tested. There may be opportunities in certain locations where they could be applied. So yeah, that's something that does need to be looked at but the whole issue of drainage in general and potential for flooding is something that is only going to be become increasingly important for local governments in particular to address. The state government is now accepting that by 2100 we'll have a sea level rise of of 800 millimetres which obviously uh, is going to uh, slow down any escape of uh, water, storm waters from inland so uh, um, the water in the bay will actually hold back, particularly at high tide if there's a torrential downpour at the same time. The high tides will actually prevent those stormwaters from escaping into the bay, so, and that does cause flooding. So there's a massive issue, really, that needs to be addressed in the longer term of how do we actually manage our stormwater systems to enable water to escape to the bay without endangering or and flooding particularly lowland areas and properties.
1: It must be a worry too to um, planners with the amount of land now being put under concrete and bitumen that when there is a heavy rain there's nowhere for that water to go except down into the drains it doesn't soak into ground anymore
3: yeah that's exactly right and for that reason it it also uh, arrives at the bay in a much more faster time than it would have otherwise uh, simply because as so much as getting into the into the actual drainage channels more quickly that's really a, a big concern.
1: Do you actually get out on the river and test what's coming down under the surface?
3: Uh, not so much under the surface. We have been doing uh, manta net trawls for microplastics, which is essentially a net which is designed to capture anything within perhaps to the top 150 millimetres of the, of the surface water. So plastics floating, that's where the most of them are likely to be. So, Otherwise, we don't have any programs that, is, that are testing stuff in the river sediments, for example. We are doing some live mollusk surveys around the bay and also in the Yarra too at Lorimer Street, in the intertidal area there, just to find out what uh, mollusks are actually living in, in those sediments. And that, that's been interesting. Good to see that there, there is some life in the in the Yarra sediments just uh, under the West Coat Bridge.
1: So that means the water's fairly healthy?
3: Yeah, that's a good sign that you know, there were a number of species there as well too. So the more species you find, obviously, is the indicator that uh, things are in good shape.
1: And do people come and pick them off the, the rocks or whatever they do and eat them? These days?
3: I don't know that that occurs in the Yarra, but um, there are some people that do that. There's no shellfish collection from rocky areas allowed uh, in the bay anymore, or I think even the Victorian in general.
1: Why is that? It's
3: uh, just simply, the, primarily because uh, they're pretty easy to get to. You know, if that was allowed, then... You have none left. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And the mollus populations in general play a really important role in terms of... Uh, transferring and cycling of nutrients in, in the bay e- ecosystem so uh, it's important that the, that their populations are maintained at a healthy level.
1: And uh, how do they do that?
3: How do they transfer the nutrients? Mm-hmm. Animals that you're living on the rocks that you were referring to um, for example the grazing on algae that grow on the rocks so the, the micro are sort of one of the first stages of growth I guess as a result of uh, nutrients coming in washed into the bay through from places such as the era. Also the western treatment plant is another big source of nutrient. Unless that nutrient is actually being channelled further up the food chain uh, if, they, if it just remained as algal growth for example then we'd have excess levels of algae which would deplete the oxygen in the water uh, at certain times of the day so which would have implications for uh, animals that such as fish that need oxygen it's important that there there is that mechanism in the in the overall system to be able to keep the plant growth in check finding the right the tipping point problematic i guess but as a general principle though, we do need more species in the system so that the nutrient is being transferred. The other thing is that uh, nitrates are formed from fecal matter that are produced by various organisms such as fish. The molluscs and worms that live in the sediments of the bay by their burrowing activities enable those little parcels to be dispersed into the sediments where they are then eaten by bacteria turned back into nitrogen gas which then goes back into the atmosphere. So That's sort of closing the loop and keeps the whole system sort of turning over, which is great. That's sort of one of the unsung sort of uh, good things that uh, benthic populations do that many people are unaware of. Really highlights the need, though, to maintain those healthy populations.
1: I think the first time I spoke to you many, many years ago, the topic was the penguins at St Kilda. Mm. Can we talk about the history of the penguins? What do people know about when they were first seen? apart from the aborigines and i'm sure that they saw them
3: interesting that there are no sort of indications of penguins ever being eaten by aboriginal people uh, from available studies on aboriginal middens etc there's no no records of penguin bones or anything like that that i've ever come across penguins have been known to be in port Phillip bay though for uh, there was a record i think in 1911 from a uh, president of the Field Naturalist Club uh, at that time who um, saw rafts of penguins off Coralright Creek, it's probable that they would have been uh, related to the Phillip Island penguin colony, which uh, we know uh, large numbers of penguins from Phillip Island come into Port Phillip Bay during the wintertime to to feed up, prepare for the next breeding season. So we would assume that probably um, some of those penguins that uh, come into the bay... When they discovered this breakwater in St Kilda, which was built in 1956, thought, well, you know, nice city lights, might as well stick around here. And uh, uh, the other thing, of course, is that the anchovy population in the bay does spawn up near the, uh, in the Hobsons Bay area, off Williamstown and the Yarra area, which is less saline than the rest of the bay, and apparently they appreciate that. So that spawning is occurring around about the same time as the penguins are actually wanting to feed chicks, so from St Kilda it's only a, a short swim to uh, go and collect a good feed for, to, to, for the growing babies. And so it works very well, and for that reason the population in St Kilda is is doing quite well, particularly since commercial fishing for the pet food industry stopped back in the mid-1990s.
1: Why did that happen?
3: There was a virus that hit pilchard population around southern Australia and was we believe was triggered... By pilchards being harvested somewhere off South America, used to feed the tuna off in the South Australian tuna farms, believed that there was a the virus was introduced into Southern Australian waters from that source. Just going back to the penguins in St Kilda, though their first record of breeding there was in 1974, with two pairs were recorded breeding there. Uh, I and mean, there wasn't really much more thought about them. They just thought to be a couple of weirdos, you know, that <laughs> got lost. <laughs> couldn't have been real penguins. <laughs> anyway, yeah, they were there. And uh, Then in 1986, a uh, study began under the guidance of Professor Mike Cullen from Monash University. And uh, I think it was August 23rd in 1986, uh, I was lucky enough to go out with Mike for the first study trip. And we found 11 adult penguins and six chicks that evening, and now there's about 1,600 adults. The numbers didn't grow very rapidly, though, up until the mid-1990s, and there were 300 in 1995. The pilchard virus then hit, and then those, the population halved in the next 12 months. The fishing fleet that had been competing with the penguins, obviously, uh, for small bait fish up until that time, stopped operating because the the catch just wasn't there, and they never really did take it up again.
1: Where do they... Bring up the babies.
3: They live within hollows and are just underneath the rocks uh, that um, are part of the breakwater structure.
1: So they're totally protected there?
3: There's not really too many predators that they're faced with out in that situation, so um, it seems to have worked quite well for them.
1: And it's a great tourist attraction now, isn't it? It has been for quite oh, a while. Yeah,
3: there's um, quite a lot of people go down um, I think uh, the word got out in Lonely Planet around about seven or eight years ago, and so now, on a summer evening, there could be you know a thousand people down there, and more. Particularly this year, I've noticed a lot of people going down there in the winter time. That there might be a few hundred people down there, whereas a couple of years ago there may be three or four.
1: No interaction, I hope.
3: It has to be said that the good work that Earthcare volunteers have been doing uh, to supervise access to, to the public area of the, of the penguin area. They advise people on uh, use of flashlights and uh, not to climb around the rocks and not to use selfie sticks to put um, cameras in burrows and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good um, a way for people to learn about penguins and interact with them in a way which is not really going to trouble the, the colony too much. There's obviously always some extreme events that occasionally occur when somebody does something totally dumb but uh, generally speaking, though, it it's good. could be improved with a bit more resourcing, though. I mean, it's a massive undertaking to have a team of volunteers down there seven days a week for a few hours in each evening to make sure that things are, are done properly.
1: And what help helped you get financially to do that?
3: Uh, there was not really any assistance at this stage. The Echo Centre was fortunate to get some funding uh, Probably about four years ago, as a result of a, a court order and and that was for the bay care project um, through the ePA a successful prosecution for an oil spill and we actually had a, a volunteer coordinator for a couple of days a week which helped to set up the volunteer program or put it on a more well managed footing in terms of having uh you know, schedules and that sort of stuff when that funding ran out uh, it's been taken over again by volunteers and maintained by uh, people from EarthCare. One of the things that highlights, though, is you know we often talk about funding for, for projects and uh, uh, government puts up some money and um, they think that's a fantastic photo opportunity that they should be so generous and I'm not knocking it. But one thing that has to be acknowledged is the value of the volunteer contribution that communities make towards coastal protection is simply massive. It really does need to be acknowledged and, and recognized. But we shouldn't take that for granted though and and there does need to be more support given to those volunteers, I believe, from government sources.
1: And I believe you've got some Chinese volunteers assisting with putting out a what, a pamphlet or a yeah, so newsletter?
3: one of the things that has been uh, notable of, of, in recent years is the number of Chinese visitors that are actually coming to the colony and uh, that's something that um, obviously if they were given uh, information that's in their own language and uh, you know, particularly on topic with their, within their culture and relevant to the way they see the world, then that's only going to enhance that for them but also it has to enhance it for the penguins you know so the language thing is always a problem for any any groups that are that are going to be visiting and there are many many people from all over the world who come to St Kilda now to see the penguins it's good to just make sure that that experience is actually and the information that they're taking back to their own countries and cultures is is appropriate for the needs of looking after the penguins but also giving a message about Protection of biodiversity generally, I mean, that's the good thing, the fantastic opportunity with the St Kilda penguins. Oh, they are so accessible and so cute <laughs> that they're really a great opportunity for getting people to sort of connect to nature and uh, maybe changing their own behaviours to sort of uh, accommodate a better future for biodiversity. We haven't actually completed the pamphlet yet. It, uh, it may be that there could even be some on-site signage, though, you know, that uh, that might emerge out of this activity of of coming up with relevant information written in Chinese it's more likely though that um, just in the short term would, would be that uh, some of the penguin guides that uh, are out there on each occasion when they see a group of Chinese people come there can just give them one so rather than having paper flying around in the environment obviously it'll need to be resourced however it's done so it'll be on a shoestring initially at least. We're fortunate in Australia we 've got some wonderful Chinese people who live here and, and have grown up here, and you know uh, third generation or fourth generation Australians you know so who actually speak Chinese very well, so it's better to tap into people who say the right thing, you know, so uh, you don't get uh, people saying, uh, "Your baby looks like a tractor.": you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's all I have, Neil, is there, is there how would you like to finish off?
3: I'd just like to thank you, Jen, for uh, your sterling work over the years. We calculate that you'd actually spent uh, three months of your life on air when you added all those hours up, so it's, it's great to see you and hope you do another three months. Really, would like to put the word out uh, that we would love people to get involved in the Baykeeper Citizen Science activities that are doing, and that includes doing live mollusk surveys... We're doing shore beach profiling so we can actually track erosion of beaches and that's just a good learning activity and also microplastics audits on beaches. All of this sort of stuff is important information that needs to be gathered if we're going to change people's attitudes and also government policies and legislations, etc. for a better environment and uh, community power is the way to go.
1: And that, of course, is the the Port Phillip Baykeeper. And and if you're interested in any of the issues that Neil's been talking about today, Neil Blake, the Port Phillip Eco Centre, and you might recognise this voice.
3: Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Eco Centre in St Kildare. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going,
1: Ah!
4: Ah! Ah!
5: Stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3C.
1: This year marks the 50th anniversary of the opening of what is known as the Joint Defense Facility at Pine Gap, less than 20 kilometers from Alice Springs in the Northern Territory a facility that essentially remains top secret and is the single most important US intelligence facility outside the US. I'm speaking with Richard Tanta, Senior Research Associate with the Nautilus Institute and Professor in the School of Political and Social Studies at the University of Melbourne. Richard, the story goes like this as far as the general public was aware of the presence of Pine Gap. A reporter with the Alice Springs newspaper discovered Pine Gap in 1970 because she was curious about US military activity in the town and a road where ordinary citizens were not allowed to travel on and the Americans wouldn't tell her what was going on. What were the real beginnings of Pine Gap?
5: Well, I can't tell you that. I do know that, of course, negotiations have been going on in Canberra from about five years earlier, through late 65 and 1966. And by late 66, the uh, treaty had been agreed to, had been written the implementing agreement, which specified exactly what was going to happen, but was never published, made it clear what was happening. And by 68, there would have been the beginnings of considerable construction activity there. I think the road itself was probably locked off by that. Sixty-seven. So your story sounds about right in terms of the knowledge that local people had. The Minister for Defence, a man named Alan Fairhall, had been through Alice Springs, I'm not sure, probably in 1967 or 68, assuring locals that the uh, facility, which was presented as a space research facility, had no military function whatsoever. I'm not sure all of the locals actually believe that, but uh, they didn't have any information to the contrary for a long time.
1: What is actually known about the initial plan? Well,
5: the initial plan was still the primary function of Pine Gap, which is to be—it was to be a ground station for commanding and controlling satellites about thirty-six thousand kilometres above the Earth's surface, which were listening to radio signals initially from Soviet missiles being tested, the telemetry signals sending back to their bases. Saying the condition that the test missiles were in, it was downlinking the information from those satellites and then sending them back to the United States. In those days, primarily on tapes which were taken out of Alice Springs Airport every week or so.
1: Why that place in the in the world? What's the importance? (laughs)
5: That's a good question. Uh, It had to be somewhere roughly in in our part of the world, meaning from roughly the middle of the Indian Ocean to the middle of the Pacific. One of the things that determined the location, apart from Australia being very compliant with what the United States wanted, was the fact the data was downlinked in a beam. You can imagine something coming 36,000 kilometres away. The beam spreads out quite a lot. And the Americans were very concerned that if, for example, they put it on an island in the Indian Ocean or, the, or in the Pacific, say, imagine, Diego or, Garcia or Cocos Island, then a Soviet Union intelligence trawler could just sit off the coast of that island in international waters more than 12 nautical miles out from the beach and pick up the whole signal, and that would enable the Soviets potentially to work out, well, what exactly was it listening to and consequently what did they have to do to counteract it? To do that, the answer was to put it in the middle of a continent and make sure that for about 160 kilometres around, nobody had an antenna going up to listen to it. That's why the ASIO Alice Springs office was established in those days, just to make sure that wasn't happening. Planes who have to come close to Pine Gap because of the location of the airport. They're not allowed to fly over Pine Gap, but even so, even if they did, they wouldn't really be in a position to pick up those signals because, as you know, Pine Gap itself shows, you need a very large antenna to pick up those weak signals coming from so far away in space.
1: Over the years, the base has expanded. What is known about what's there in two thousand and sixteen?
5: Well, firstly, that function of commanding, controlling, and downlinking from those signals intelligence satellites—that's grown bigger and bigger. Those satellites are still there. Pine Gap commands and controls three of them in roughly from sitting over uh, Indonesia to sitting over Eastern Africa. Those satellites are much more sensitive than they were before and Pine Gap does a great deal more work actually processing that raw data, that sort of noise that you would hear because it's all encrypted, decrypting it, working out what it's. Actually, is and then sending the process intelligence off to Washington and other parts of the Five Eyes network. But since then, uh, Pine Gap has actually developed two more quite separate functions. Firstly, in 2000, after the uh, American joint, so called joint facility at Narunga in South Australia near Woomera. When that was closed, its functions moved to Pine Gap, and it had one single function, which was to downlink the signals from a completely different set of satellites, which were the early warning satellites, giving America warning of, in those days, a Soviet or Chinese missile launch. Essentially, these satellites had giant infrared telescopes on board. They picked up the heat bloom, the thermal bloom of those launches, sent information directly back to... United States through originally Narunga and now Pine Gap. That still happens and happens almost completely automatically. There are very few people involved in that. The third thing is rather newer, which is a different kind of signals intelligence. Essentially, Pine Gap has three new very large antenna which point up at the sky, listening to the downlinks from communication satellites. So if you were in England and you and I were having this conversation, probably a fair part of our conversation would be through satellite telephones or satellite links. Pine Gap listens to a great many of those telephone, telex and computer conversations, uh, just simply pointing those antennas from the ground up at Indonesian, Russian, Chinese communications and navigation satellites. So it does a great deal more now than it used to do.
1: And this is supposed to be a secret facility. How do you find out all these things?
5: Basically by looking hard. The work that I've been involved in was work with a guy named Desmond Ball in Canberra, and Des Ball has been working on these issues going back to the late 1960s, the early 1970s. We're built on that early work, but a lot of the research work is based on very carefully trawling through American government military documents looking at the commercial area because of course corporations are deeply involved in the running of pine gap and they have to make some of that public the general rule is while the australian government tells you and i very very little the american government takes a slightly different view of security there are some things they keep absolutely dark and black about pine gap but they're really the kind of things that say chinese military people would want to know about very precise information about frequencies and capacities of those facilities. We don't know all of that, but we can find out a great deal more than the Australian government's willing to tell its own people.
1: Why does the Australian government try and keep it so secret?
5: I think Australian governments have always taken a harder line on what happens at Pine Gap. I think partly they're simply terrified of, if you like, in their eyes, letting down the Americans by letting intelligence through. I think the Americans are basically more sensible about it because they realise that these facilities are around the world. Many of the companion stations for Pine Gap in the United Kingdom and in uh, the United States itself are so big they can't be hidden. And they're actually more relaxed about, about that. We have been wondering whether there would be some response to the material that we've published in the last year and a half detailing what Pine Gap does, and there hasn't been so far. And I think the reality is the Americans can actually cope with that level of openness, whereas Australian governments are simply more, essentially more authoritarian about it because they're more concerned about the American power, about the actual intelligence secrecy there.
1: Well, it's known as a joint facility. Does that mean... Australians have equal access to what's there?
5: Actually, I think it does mean that. I think uh, uh, in the past there was a, a feeling that Australia didn't get uh, access to the intelligence uh, that, that is derived from, from that uh, facility, the work was done. Since the middle 1980s at least, the numbers of Australians and Americans employed have been roughly half and half, and they are again today. More Australians are involved now in all parts of the facility. There was certainly a time early on when the United States kept the Australians out of the operations room effectively where the important stuff happens. That changed some decades ago. The other side of that is while it is, you know, perhaps good from a sense of, you know, national pride, if you like, that Australians are involved in all of this, is two things. Firstly, that makes Australia, Australian government, and the rest of us really, to the extent we go along with it, complicit and culpable for what's done with that intelligence at playing gap. And that includes things, for example, like providing uh, intelligence data, location data, which then feeds into the CIA's drone assassination program. We share, I think, uh, responsibility for that uh, equally, Pine Gap has a role in targeting uh, for nuclear war, if it should ever happen, We're partly it seems to me culpable for accepting the, our role in that. The other thing is, really, the vast amount of intelligence that passes through Pine Gap is really not very relevant to Australia's needs. There are some things that Pine Gap does that the Australian military and Australian intelligence find quite useful. Whether that's worth the price that we pay as Pine Gap being a target, accepting responsibility for all things done because of what it does, because of what uh, capacities it has, I don't think that's a price we should be paying.
1: And also the corporations who are involved at Pine Gap, Hmm. major arms manufacturers.
5: Well, they're major arms manufacturers. They're major corporations in the American manufacturing scene all over. Um, Northrop Grumman is principally a weapons manufacturer, but Boeing, for example, you know builds the airliners that many of us go on planes within this country and overseas. Uh, Raytheon is a very large electronics corporation, military and otherwise. There are some companies there which are really purely involved in the military and intelligence aspects of these things. But certainly the major American arms manufacturers, defence manufacturers, defence electronics corporations are deeply involved in Pine Gap. And really, not many people there actually work directly for the US government these days.
1: So is Alice Springs a, a mini US town? Well, I think you can actually
5: say that because Pine Gap has about... 850, 900 people working for it, half of them Americans. The American population of Alice Springs is probably about 2,000 or so. Now, in a you know, town size of, what, perhaps 25,000 now, that's a huge part of the, uh, the economy for a start. And so it's not an American town, it's a, a complicated Australian multicultural town in many respects and a very interesting one, but... Uh, it's certainly true to say that Pine Gap is critical to the current structure of the economy in Alice Springs.
1: There will be protests later this year, closer to the anniversary. There have been many protests over the years at Pine Gap.
5: There have been, and there's a long tradition uh, of protest there. There's a long tradition of peace activism in Alice Springs itself. The extraordinarily important women's camp in 1986 and the Close the Gap Demonstrations in 1988, where hundreds of people went over the fence, were really important. There are also small, symbolic, but really significant uh, protests going back to the earlier in the 1980s when half a dozen people rode bicycles down the runway of the Alice Springs Airport as one of the giant American cargo planes was bringing in supplies to the United States. Uh, equally, in 2005, four people from a group named Christians Against All Terrorism broke into Pine Gap uh, after having told the government and the, the base and the Australian Federal Police that they were going to do so drawing attention to the base's role in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, that role that continues today. So there's been a very long tradition of protest there, and the ones that be planned for the end of September, early October, I think are going to be very important in this year, which is the anniversary of the signing of the treaty back in 1966.
1: Well, the base is not going to move, so what needs to be done
5: I think the first thing is you've got to get people talking about it. I think many Australians really know that it's there. It's one of those things that people don't like to recognise, but as soon as the name Pine Gap comes up, people say, oh, yeah, well, what actually happens there? So I think the first thing to do is to make people very aware that they can find out what happens there, that it is an intelligence base, it is a military base, it is involved in operations, not just with drones, but with operations in Iraq, Syria and Afghanistan, where um, uh, our troops are still fighting, still involved in that war. And then I think the next thing is to get people to start to think about, well, is this what we want? Is this what we want done in our names? And then I think there's actually a fairly serious question about whether there are things that Pine Gap does that the Australian military may quite reasonably want to protect. And the question then becomes, well, is there another way of achieving that? And then when the answer comes that we get all of this intelligence and this makes us part of the you know, the big end of town, if you like, the question has to be asked, well, what do we really need out of all of that and what do we do with it? Are there other ways in which we can achieve that? That gets to a fairly technical policy discussion and then Bologna, I think that enables you to think about a position which says, well, OK, maybe there are some things which are useful about it but they can be obtained in other ways and as Malcolm Fraser said, really what it comes down to is giving the Americans five years to close the base and move its in somewhere else. That's a reasonable proposition, I think.
1: How many times has it been renewed, the lease on the base? I think it
5: has been renewed three times, and I'd have to check that certainly twice, but now it's operating effectively until it's stopped. In other words, not necessarily a, a review after 10 years. So that's very much part of it, is that every time there's any legal question about its continuity we really need to be much more active about really challenging its functions and working out what australia wants to do
1: with it just looking at worldwide are there other countries that have a base i know it wouldn't be the same as this but of the importance that this one is to the american war fighting machine
5: well yes there are there's certainly a companion base in britain which is the raf base menwood hill in yorkshire is technically a little bit bigger. Uh, it's very important to the Americans. One of the interesting things is it's much less of a joint facility than Pine Gap is. The British government hasn't pushed the Americans as hard as the Australian government did for more access to it and more involvement in it. But, of course, uh, in the Pacific, uh, on the island of Guam, in Japan, almost throughout the islands, uh, the islands by islands of Japan, particularly in Okinawa, India, Garcia, in the Indian Ocean, there are very large numbers of American intelligence facilities which are extremely important. And I think one thing for Australians to understand is that Palm Gap doesn't operate alone. It's yeah. one of two control facilities for those signals intelligence satellites. It's one of uh, facilities operated by five different countries, the so called Five Eyes, North States, Britain, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Um, where all of the facilities cooperate with each other swap tasks together and increasingly function as a network, Imagine a computer network. So if you just turn out one part of it, it doesn't really uh, degrade it completely. And it means you can't separate times that from what the rest of that network is doing. And that's part of the question, I think, that we have to think about in terms of our responsibility, moral, legal, for what that network as a whole is doing, for example not just in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, but equally the drone assassination programs in Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, countries with which Australia is not at war and which basically are simply matters of assassination.
1: Well, you've been following this for many, many years now. What would you like to see done?
5: I think Gap has to be closed. Its functions are unacceptable for Australia in many, many respects. And I think the... Final conclusion is it has to be closed. In fact, I think it should have been closed a long time ago. Government's been saying since the Hawke government that uh, it's vital for arms control. Verification. The signal intelligence allows you to know what the other side is doing and therefore keeping to their promises about arms control. There are two things about that. Firstly, there isn't much arms control at the moment, really under American and Russian political attitudes at the moment. We're not going to see much for a long time, I suspect. Secondly, those facilities that allow arms control also allow to do very other, other unacceptable things. And I think it's possible for the arms control functions to be achieved in other respects. Having said, I really want to close, it's clear that it's only going to be closed after a very long amount of political agitation, education, mobilisation, really thinking about that. I think we need to think about whether Australia gets any particular value out of it, things that the the Australian military do value, and I think there are, and the question then is whether they can be achieved in any other way. Secondly, for the United States, uh, clearly you can't just say, well, we're closing it down tomorrow. That's an unreal position in the world. But you can actually, it seems to me, make a position, for example, of Malcolm Fraser, who said, we can say to the United States, you five years to close down Pine Gap. Now, I think it's basically possible for Pine Gap to be put in very different parts of the world. It doesn't have that same requirement. It's now possible for those intelligent satellites, for example, to encrypt everything they downlink, and therefore you don't learn about some interception The beams coming down can be much narrower. It's also possible for other places to fulfill the early warning relay function that Pine Gap fills today, that doesn't have to happen there. So we ask the Americans to think very carefully about what their genuine, as opposed to some of their more unacceptable national security requirements at Pine Gap, and then give them five years to find another way of doing it if that's what they want to do. The task for Australia is to say, it needs to be closed down. We need to stop being involved in these activities, which are connected to nuclear war, drone assassinations, and many other things and then really have the deep community debate, not a conversation, but a real argument about what are Australia's real defence needs and what do we need to achieve those, as opposed to what governments, which are really very subordinate to the United States, uh, tell us to do. We might imagine a government which could stand up to the Americans and say, well, you can stay here if you stop doing X and Y, But the reality is we haven't had a government with that kind of political, well, courage uh, and capacity in Australia for a very long time. So I think the only thing to think about is how we go about closing Pine
1: Gap. And could this, in a sense, if this happened, set a precedent for people in other countries where they have U.S. facilities to take up the cudgel as well?
5: Well, certainly that would be very, very important. I think in Australia, though, we're probably going to be learning from other people who have been pushing for this uh, a long time and it'll make us realise that we're in much the same position as many other countries are.
1: Thanks very much. And that was Professor Richard Tander.
0: IPAN is inviting you to attend its anti-war conference and join the Close Pine Gap protests from the 26th of September to the 2nd of October in Alice Springs. Pine Gap facilitates US war activities, international espionage and their killer drone program. It's time to stop the drift to war and free Australia from US military bases. For more information on the IPAN conference, go to ipan.org.au and for protest details, see closepinegap.org. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Miguel Altieri is a
1: professor of agroecology at the University of California, Berkeley, and recently wrote an article warning that although some people in both the US and Cuba believe that normalising relations will spur investment that can help Cuba develop its economy and improve life for its citizens. Cuba's sustainable agriculture is at risk in the US thaw. When I spoke with Miguel, I asked him first to explain the method of agroecology and where it was first applied.
6: Agroecology is a a science that combines traditional knowledge of farmers, and uh, some of the advances of agronomy and, and ecological science, the Western type of science. So it was born in, in Latin America back in, in the 1980s as, as a science. It was mainly used by NGOs, non-government organizations, promoting alternatives to the green revolution for small farmers. And started spreading from there to the universities, and, and now it's in, pretty much in the hands of social movements, like La Via Campesina, which is the largest person organization in the world. Recently, a lot of people are talking about agroecology, but there are different versions. Uh, I mean, the Europeans and the North Americans just uh, jumped on board not too long ago on agroecology, but they have a different meaning than we have in Latin America.
1: What about Africa and Asia?
6: African and Asia are still not very much embedded in, in agroecology. We have given a couple of training courses, one in Zambia for West African people and one in Asia, Southeast Asia, and for Indonesia, Philippines, people from those countries, and they didn't know the word agroecology. So they were more used to organic farming and things of that nature. But spreading, because Via Campesina being a global movement, they use agroecology as one of the cornerstones of their food sovereignty strategy. So peasant organizations associated with the Via Campesina and Africa nation know about it.
1: Can you give a couple of examples in Latin America where it's been very successful?
6: Well, there are many, many examples. In Brazil and Cuba, in Peru and Nicaragua, in Mexico, many countries, there are many examples of farmers that have been able to reach... Total food self-sufficiency without external inputs, just by designing the farm in a in a diversified manner that allows the system to sponsor its own function without the use of external inputs. We've written a, a, a lot of examples of, on this stuff in you know journals and, for many years. If you want some specific examples, it's just a matter of looking at the literature. But as I, as I said, one of the the top examples is Cuba because uh, in 1989 when they were ran out of gas and petroleum and pesticides and fertilizers because of the Soviet Union collapse, they turned very quickly to agroecology. Now there's more than 150,000 farmers using agroecological methods in the island.
1: And what are the methods that they're using? Why has it been so successful?
6: Agricology is not about techniques or practices. It's about principles. And those principles take different technological forms depending on their economic and social and environmental realities. So, for example, one of the principles is the diversification of the agroecosystem. That can take the form of polycultures, you know, intercropping, agroforestry, silvopastoral systems, all kinds of different diversified designs. The point is that it will change depending on the country or region or, or area where you're applying it based on the conditions there. There's no budget bullet recipes in agriculture, like corn, bean, association is the best and use it everywhere. No, what it is is principles that need to be applied in the form of practices.
1: Who helped them after that period when the Soviet Union left? Because if they'd had traditional farming methods it would have all been lost, how did they know what to do?
6: You mean in Cuba after the Soviet Union collapsed?
1: yeah how did the people get onto this
6: there were were a lot of researchers already doing agricultural work in cuba In cuba yeah those people came to the front when there was no other alternatives because the government of cuba has to support agroecology only when when there's a scarcity so after the Soviet block since they didn't have any alternatives they led these people to to start you know showing what they were doing, which was working under the new circumstances. and then since these farmers were linked to these scientists were linked to farmers of organizations, then they started promoting agriculture through farmer to farmer methods of uh, exchange of information, horizontal exchange of information. There was also important inputs from people that that came and supported the agroecological revolution in Cuba early on, like uh, Peter Rosset and myself and others.
1: And what was your role?
6: Oh, my role was basically a lot of training. I did a lot of training, uh, a lot of courses for farmers, for scientists, for researchers. And then we also were able to set up a program with funding from the United Nations Development Program, UNDP, called agroecological lighthouses, which basically were farms that were already successfully working based on agroecological principles, and they served as demonstration farms to hundreds of farmers that came and received training in those farms. That's why we call them the lighthouses.
1: How different is it from permaculture?
6: You see, there's a lot of other currents or practices, permaculture, organic farming, biodynamic et cetera, et cetera, and they all have their own way of uh, explaining their methods and understanding nature. But agriculture is, is, is like a universal science that can explain how agricultural systems work, no matter whether they're biodynamic or permaculture-based or organic or whatever. It's like ecology. Ecology explains how nature works, and it doesn't matter if it's a tundra in the Arctic or a, a tropical rainforest. It's the same principles, the same processes that are happening. So for example, there's no contradiction with permaculture or dynamic people, but they have their own way to explain their systems and I have, I can go to a dynamic, dynamic farm or permaculture farm and explain how it works agroecologically. And I respect the way they understand and explain their systems, but the problem is that they have not been successful in socializing the principles that they espouse because, uh, Otherwise, why agroecology was taken by the Via Campesina and not permaculture, for example, or organic farming or biodynamic farming. But what they took is agroecology because they understood it as much more close to their rationale. It's based on traditional knowledge.
1: You're very concerned with the possible changes with the connection now between the US and Cuba that a lot of this could be destroyed. Can you explain what your main fears are?
6: Well, basically what's happening is that Cuba is, on, is opening up its economy and not just recently to the U.S. It's already, there's already about 40,000 hectares of soybean from Brazil and about 20,000 hectares of uh, rice from China. And there's English industries that are trying to promote biofuels based on sugarcane. So it's, it's not new that the Cuban government wants to, uh, foreign investment to come in. The main problem with the Americans is that uh, usually their policies with other countries have been that they uh, they dump their overproduction in those countries and, and drive out small farmers out of business. So, for example, in Mexico, because of the sign-free trade agreements with the U.S., the U.S. can basically dump all their subsidized corn, In Mexico, at a much cheaper price than the production cost of uh, small farmers, so it drives them out of business. As long as as Cuba protects small farmers and doesn't sign free trade agreements with the U.S. and doesn't allow the U.S. to import food that the farmers produce, I think things will be okay. But, you know, uh, we need to figure out whether that's going to happen or not. And the other thing is that there could be also pressure from tourism. Now the Americans are going there very, In in, in tremendous amounts uh, of people, and they have their own demands for special diets, and uh, that also can start, you know, biasing the the market and and driving farmers to use things that for the export market rather than rather than for the food self-sufficiency of the country. So that's another pressure that can change things. And the third one is that the U.S. itself starts coming in and buying land. Starting uh, operations that would outcompete the small farmers in, in, in Cuba because, uh, as, as it happens in this country where 219 farmers go out of business every day, because big farmers have economics of scale and are favored by the, by the policies, drives so out the small farmers. So it could, the same thing could happen in, in, in Cuba if things go the wrong way. I am trusting that the Cuban government, which says that are going to protect the achievements of the revolution, like education and health and all that, also considers every control self-efficiency as one of the achievements of the, the revolution and be able to uh, protect the small farmers and things maybe will not change that drastically.
1: Have GMOs already been brought into Cuba?
6: No. Cuba, Cuba produced its own GMOs, actually. But uh, it was kind of a dead-end... Because um, Fidel Castro supported a lot of of biotechnological research for health, Um, and they're very quite advanced in health achievements with biotechnology in Cuba. And and then they created an institute of uh, agricultural uh, biotechnology, National, and, they, and these people, what they were doing, uh, they were trying to develop alternatives to, with biotechnology to things that could not be solved without ecological methods, like, for example, viruses, which are polygenic traits, so it takes a long time to, to deal with that, or drought resistance, that kind of thing. And they were also working for foreign governments that would uh, ask the Cubans for specific genetic engineering uh, projects, products. And then there was a pressure because Fidel kind of asked them, you know, after a few years, what are you guys doing, you know, because he didn't see any any results, although there were some results, but he didn't see any results in the field. They released very quickly a corn, DT corn, which didn't go anywhere because uh, in Cuba there's plenty of alternatives to pests of corn with agricultural methods. So at the beginning they released like uh, something like 400 hectares and then it didn't expand anymore, and, and I don't think that there's GMOs anymore in, in Cuba.
1: What about trade deals between the U.S. and Cuba? They're not part of the Pacific trade agreement that's going on at the moment, are they?
6: No, there's no trade agreements right now. Basically, there's a stimulus for Americans to visit and businesses to go and explore what what could be done, and any deal that will be... In any field, not just in agriculture, but in, in tourism and in, in manufacturing, whatever, there would be mixed companies. 50% of investment would be always Cuban, not the totally private enterprises functioning in Cuba. They're all part of a mixed economy and, and they're all regulated by the government very heavily.
1: You're concerned about the rural areas in Cuba. Are you also concerned about the urban farming?
6: Yeah, because, you know, if the U.S. starts bringing in cheap food by dumping their overproduction, then there's no stimulus for urban farming. Uh, urban farming basically become became a major response to the crisis that Cuba faced in 89 because the problem was that they could not move the food from the rural areas to the urban areas because there was no petroleum, there was no spare parts. So... Urban agriculture sounded like a a fantastic solution to to solve the problem at that time. Cuba has about 50,000 hectares of of, uh, urban agriculture with a a very high productivity in up to 15 to 20 kilos of food per square meter, vegetables per square meter per year. And they produce about one-third of the needs of vegetables and eggs and things of that nature uh, for in the major cities. If there is cheap food policy, then then that could change things. But um, at this point, I think that the people, the consumer groups, are very, very supportive of urban agriculture because basically these farms are in the middle of their neighborhoods and they see how they're producing. They also provide employment because some of these urban gardens grew very, very professionally and and they started with five, six people and, and some of them now have 50, 100 employees producing food in a massive way all locally produced for the local population so I think that the consumers appreciate that a lot and they might continue supporting that despite the fact that cheap food comes from the outside
1: When did you last go to Cuba?
6: I was in Cuba last uh, November of last year and I'm going again in October of this year to a major conference international conference on agroecology affected about 450 people, maybe 200 people from outside of Cuba coming.
1: Were people expressing concern at that time about the move by the U.S. into Cuba?
6: There were all kinds of opinions, you know. There were people that felt that it was good to open up but uh, uh, there should be controlled penetration of this relation should be controlled achievement of the revolution. I would say that the majority of the people were confident that that, that was going to be the case, uh, that uh, the Cuban government was going to be very careful about how to uh, open up the economy in ways that is not going to sabotage the self sufficiency you of know, the island and, and many of the other achievements. And then there were other people, the minority, I would say, that were very pessimistic about what was going to happen. So it depends on who you talk to, but um, in general, I would say that people are cautious, but interested in, in seeing how it will develop.
1: Will members of the government be included in the conference in October?
6: Many times they come and they just do, you know, the inauguration, like the Minister of Agriculture comes or the Vice Minister, but they don't stay too much. There are people from lower, I'm talking about the employees of the ministers, of the Ministry of Agriculture, you know, technicians, they come and take those, those conferences. They have taken my courses. They have taken my training courses. But they don't have much influence uh, at the top level, I would say. So high administration people don't come to those conferences other than just opening them and, and then leaving. As I said, uh, the government historically has been supportive of agriculture only when there, there was scarcity of petroleum or pesticides and petroleum. But when... For example, during the times when the Venezuelan government, during Chavez, used to send them petroleum and fertilizers, then the government would drop the support for agriculture. Then when when times were tough, then they were supporting agriculture. So they saw agriculture as something that that would be strategic only in times of difficulty, and they they didn't see it as a policy that should be developed regardless of the circumstances outside.
1: What you're saying is you don't trust the government to protect agroecology.
6: The government, I don't think they understand. <laughs> they understand what agroecology is.
1: How can you educate them?
6: Yeah, well, we have tried. We did once uh, a major event at the uh, at the Congress of Cuba and, uh, and then also with the Academy of Sciences. It's like everywhere in every country in the world. You know, the bureaucrats are pushed by big interests sometimes and, and they don't they don't want to listen to these alternatives. All the governments in Latin America and in Africa and Asia and here in the US are not at all receptive to agriculture, more receptive to the industrial agricultural approach.
1: But the trouble is it's too important to let go.
6: Yeah, I, I don't think that the small farmers that are practicing agriculture, which as I said is about a hundred and fifty thousand I don't think that they're going to change their methods, regardless of what happens, because they already are producing tremendous amount of food in beautiful farms, diversified farms, with very low cost of production. But what might happen is that they, they start, you know, responding to market signals and then, you know, becoming specialized in certain things. That could change things a little bit. But I don't see a reason why these farmers that are already doing this with natural methods and they're gonna change because, you know, now there are specifiers and fertilizers available. That's what they they have told me and uh, and that's the way I feel that it's gonna happen.
1: Who's organizing the conference in October and, and what's the main purpose of it?
6: The conference is called Agro Desarrollo. It's organized by a very interesting research station called Indio Atoy. There's already information in English if you want I can send you some of the, uh, the information in English about the conference. There are some tours to farms after the Congress in which people can see firsthand some of the farms working. It's a very, interesting develop- a very interesting event, very well organized.
1: Okay, maybe I could talk to you after the conference. Yeah, that would be good. And that was Professor Miguel Altieri. And hopefully after the conference in October... I'll be able to speak with him once again. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on... What's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Since 1948, a civil war has raged in Colombia, bringing misery and displacement to millions What is known as one of the world's longest running conflicts. In Havana, Cuba, on the 23rd of June, Colombian government officials and rebels from the left wing Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, gathered to announce a historic ceasefire after nearly four years in the making. FARC has waged war against the Colombian state and the right wing paramilitary during those decades, to achieve land reform and other social justice measures against a violent and corrupt oligarchy. The day after, in a press conference, the official leading negotiator said that the peace deal will ultimately be determined by a referendum. Last Friday, I spoke with Geoffrey Browett, Associate Professor in Latin American Studies in the School of International Studies and former Head of Programme, at the University of Technology in Sydney. I began with that date, 1948, and asked Jeff what was happening in that year to start the long conflict.
4: They had a um, a firebrand liberal politician named Jorge Eliezer-Gaitan, who uh, was, uh, let's say, within Colombian politics, kind of on the, uh, the radical side of the Liberal Party, and he promised to... Um, uplift poor people and, and tackle the usual thing the oligarchy and that uh, he was assassinated it's never been proven that the assassin was in the pay of the conservatives but either way it was taken as a an occasion for people to rise up there you know with with numbers with these things are always uh, always a bit rubbery but there was reportedly three hundred thousand people died in the aftermath of the so-called Bogotasso and it was mainly in rural areas and it was people fighting each other from either side of the political divide and settling, even settling old scores through the process of, the, of this violent encounter.
1: Now, when you say liberal, do you mean left?
4: Uh, no, well, uh, liberal in the sense of maybe the right wing of the Australian Labor Party. In that sense, liberal. The, the Liberal and the Conservative Party are the two parties that have historically dominated in Colombia since they were first formed uh, back in the mid-19th century and uh, they do have different philosophies and ideologies. The Conservative Party has usually always been more centrist, and they've had um, a bloody civil war in the past, the famous war of a thousand days at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, uh, over precisely, you know, who should control the country. But, you know, the major players in the Liberal Party are themselves part of the, um, let's say, the, the ruling classes in Colombia.
1: Well, I suppose the next question has to be, where was the left?
4: Well, the left have always been around in Colombia, but their presence was more muted. They really took off after the civil violence starting in '48, especially in rural areas, self-defense forces uh, banded together uh, to defend themselves. Uh, and, uh, you know, depending on which side of the political divide they were. Sometime in the early 60s, I think it was the early 60s, mid-60s, the let's say the liberal side of those defense forces were infiltrated or joined by um, intellectuals with a Marxist Leninist discourse. And so they politicized them and said that this struggle should be part of a greater struggle against the Colombian state and the Colombian oligarchy. And that was really the beginning of the FARC, let's say, you know, the, uh, and, and where they became more militarized, more organized, and they had a, a political, uh, well defined political discourse.
1: And of course, it's not just the FARC, there are others.
4: Yes, the famous M-19, who um, were even, in many ways, perhaps more altruistic. And that's an interesting story, because when they agreed to lay down arms, some of them were assassinated, and and especially their charismatic leader, Carlos Pizarro, was assassinated when they demobilized, and this is one of the fears behind the FARC in the peace processes, right? That those with a public profile will be targeted after the peace process.
1: You can't talk about the problems in Colombia, I believe, without talking about the involvement of the US. Is that correct? Yes,
4: but it's, it's never been constant. It's often, uh, well, it's mostly indirect, although when they finally caught up with Pablo Escobar, I think the US may have provided satellite intelligence for tracking his movements via mobile phones and stuff like that. And and the recent raid in 2008 into Ecuador by the Colombian military to attack a FARC base, I think the logistics, certainly the intelligence, was probably provided by the United States.
1: But the training and the facilitating of the military, the training of paramilitaries?
4: Yes, that's that's true. I mean, the notorious, um, I think it's called the uh, Southern Command in, uh, I forget now where it was based, I think it was based in Panama, where they trained a lot of the, um, well, what became the right-wing Military in the U.S. and in Latin American dictators, right, were trained in in these um, uh, you know in counterinsurgency tactics and stuff like that. But the, the larger, the more, the most the recent, the largest intervention by the U.S. was the initial three billion dollar investment in Colombia for fighting the drug war. And of course, when you pump three billion dollars into a country from outside to um, arm up the military and the police with high-tech um, weapons and surveillance and everything else, that hardware can be easily just pointed in the opposite direction towards the guerrilla groups. So, you know, in effect, a lot of that money that went into military hardware and so forth was also directed towards the, um, the civil war with the, um, well, not only the, the FARC, you asked about the other groups, the uh, National Liberation Army, the ALN, which operates uh, more in the north-east of Colombia.
1: What was the genesis of the drugs in Colombia, and and how has it progressed?
4: Well, I think marijuana has always been around for a long time, but through the um, eradication programs and and drug war attempts in countries like Peru and Bolivia, a lot of the uh, drug trade was displaced, uh, I think, in the 70s and 80s even, into Colombia, and that's where the Colombian cartels uh, got involved. And, and here, of course, the, the, the one that, is, that has been most important in terms of financially has been the cocaine trade, uh, but also the heroin trade. And then that's been displaced onwards again to Mexico and now to Central America. So it's um, the drug barons and the drug traffickers seem to move along one step ahead of wherever the war against them is being conducted and, and find new territories to uh, lay down routes and set up their supply chains.
1: When you talk about these long wars between the the guerrilla and the and the army and the paramilitaries, who benefit from these, and who are the ones who suffered the most?
4: Well, ordinary Colombian people. I mean, uh, at one stage, I can't remember when it was now, maybe in the early nineties. Colombia had something like three million internally displaced people, more than in places like Afghanistan—an extraordinary figure. And and along with that um, displacement comes the appropriation of their lands by large landowners by paramilitary groups and even just areas that are controlled by the the FARC and uh, the guerrilla groups uh, bring the national military down on those areas so people fled uh, into urban areas uh, poor people fled into other areas of Colombia that were less intensely engaged in, in this violence and the middle class just move out of the seas
1: horrific human rights abuses in Colombia
4: yes Yes, and um, you've got to be careful just pointing the blame at paramilitaries. I think they're the worst, without without a doubt. But the army and the FARC themselves have got blood on their hands. They they just can't claim complete innocence, uh, uh, unfortunately. Uh, But probably the worst atrocities, I think, have been carried out by the paramilitary groups.
1: And, of course, it's not just them fighting amongst themselves and, and the citizens getting in the way. There's been assassinations of many, many trade unionists journalists, other people as well, human rights activists?
4: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean...
1: Why are they being targeted? Even
4: university students. When I was teaching in Colombia in Bucaramanga, where my Colombian partner comes from, when I was teaching there in 1992, there was um, a young poet on campus who was murdered by the drug people, and I think it's because he, he moved out of poetry and and uh, was making uh, political statements and stuff. But journalists, oh my goodness, journalists, I just, I mean, some of the stuff was beyond the pale. Uh, I was in Bogota once uh, when um, we heard on the evening news that two news presenters, who are merely the messengers, they're not the ideologues, who read the 7 o'clock news after reading the 7 o'clock news, they left the TV station as they walked out the front. They were just um, murdered, shot down the message is don't read any news that is detrimental to the the image of individuals involved in the drug trade, like the major drug bosses and stuff like that. And, and the Mexicans are applying the same tactics at the moment as well. They are going after journalists and, and newsreaders and whatnot who, um, who dare to uh, portray what they're really like in the news, who read the news, right? Uh, and, and besides this, I mean, trade unionists. And members of left-wing political parties, when the M-19 demobilized and handed in their their weapons, they formed the, uh, I I think it was they formed the UP, the Unión Patriotica, and dozens of their local leaders, um, representatives, were murdered. And at the same time, around about that time in the early uh, in Sorry, in the late 80s. I remember 18, 1989, I think, was a key year for me. I think in that year alone, three presidential candidates were assassinated, which would be extraordinary. The equivalent in Australia would be like, say, um, you know... Uh maybe the leader of the Greens, uh, the leader of the Labor Party and the leader of of another political group, just being murdered uh, during a political... uh, You know, not even actually during a campaign, just being murdered because they were representing an alternative to those who represent the oligarchy of Colombia.
1: In this sense, is Colombia in 2016 one of the, the most violent places in Latin America?
4: No, I think that title goes to Honduras, possibly El Salvador... Mexico. In in terms of violence, not widespread violence necessarily across the whole community, but I mean between political actors and paramilitary groups, drug traffickers and guerrilla groups and stuff like that. There's lots of similarities, I think, between Mexico and Colombia. But the violence that doesn't get reported as much, which is actually, certainly from research I'd read, accounts for more of the death rate, is the ordinary homicides in neighborhoods that are falling apart with grinding poverty and they're almost some lawless suburbs right where even the police don't go at night time and they're basically run by drug gangs and this is very similar to the favelas in uh, brazil and places like that and and this is the violence that that uh, doesn't always kept the same as tension as a, a a stoush between a guerrilla group and and the colombian military for
1: example can you talk more about the control of the the drugs who's who's manufacturing them? Where they're going to, and it's just exactly how huge the the trade is.
4: Yeah, well, if I knew all the details, I think the think the Colombian government would be calling me up for the information. But look, in general terms, drugs are transshipped through Colombia, but they're also produced in Colombia. Coca leaf growing to extract the uh, raw coca paste to then make into uh, cocaine. And 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 it, see, when they went up, there were three really big cartels in Colombia in the 80s when they basically chopped the heads off those cartels they just regrew like the, the many-headed hydra and decentralized and also as i say a lot of operations were displaced into Mexico and then and then Central America and they they distribute and traffic the drug through everything through airplanes ships they've even come up with rudimentary submarines that apparently have been built to try and creep around the coastline and and get across the Caribbean. And high-speed launches, which are used to uh, ship across the Caribbean. And then, of course, the most tragic case, the poor working-class people who um, ingest drugs and try to take them through the airport. Uh, That's actually um, nowhere near, I think, as big as the shipments that go in containers and, and disguised in other products.
1: You talked about the displaced and the dispossessed people moved off their lands... Is that also for the benefit of of big multinationals who are moving into Colombia in um, mining and areas like that?
4: Oh, no doubt. If you haven't got local people living in in areas that are rich in um, minerals, subsoil wealth, then there's less chance of there being organised resistance to mining. As you know, in Australia, mining is a notoriously hot topic it's now a hot topic in places like Peru as well, which is doing some, allowing some really nasty mining going on against the wishes of indigenous people who actually live in those lands. And so the similar thing has happened in, in Colombia uh, as elsewhere. But yes, the multinational corporations, they want the oil wealth. Colombia has a lot of things we have. They have iron ore and gold and oil and things like this. And of course, mining companies don't really have an ethical position on this it seems to me and some of the most ruthless are Canadian companies some of the stuff they've done in uh, Mexico in my opinion is beyond the pale and so yes you're absolutely right these mining companies are it's, it's in their interest quite often if there are no people living there or the people who have suddenly begun to live there are there purely to get some money out of the exploitation of the land.
1: In a climate that you've been describing where do the indigenous peoples fit in?
4: Well, they fit awkwardly, as they always have in Latin America since um, uh, Iberian conquest. They're organized. I I don't follow Colombian indigenous politics closely, but there are different groups who are organized, and they're constantly not only protesting, but petitioning the state for protection of their lands. And there's a a low-intensity civil conflict going on in uh, Cauca, the Department of Cauca, between... Uh, Police and army, and indigenous protesters who are trying to get people off their land. And there have been lots of assassinations of indigenous people uh, over the years. And that continues. That is a really hot button issue in Colombia right now. But also the Afro descendant communities who have also been massively displaced. Um, I mean, Afro descendants in Colombia are all over the country, but they are particularly concentrated in the coastal regions of, of Colombia in the north and on the Pacific coast. They uh, exhibit some extreme levels of poverty, and then on top of that, they've had to suffer through paramilitaries and other people coming into their lands and driving them uh, away. The uh, similar phenomenon with the indigenous people, or just any ordinary mixed race peasants who are who are farmers, right, in any of the areas where the guerrillas and the paramilitary operate.
1: Can you talk for a couple of minutes about Colombia and Venezuela and the interference, or otherwise, of Colombian? into venezuela
4: that's actually not proven as much as it is claimed if it is is extremely minor and i don't have a lot of sympathy for chavismo for Hugo chavez i've never had any as a latin americanist of long-standing i've never had much sympathy for authoritarian populists and because things have gone absolutely pear-shaped in venezuela the current government under maduro are making all kinds of outlandish claims about foreign interference. And, um, yes, there's always going to be some U.S. foreign interference, but Colombians realize it's a high-risk, high-stakes um, issue if they start intervening militarily in, in Venezuela. So that's just not going to happen, aside from occasionally maybe some, some, a few military drift over the border in certain places that are not, um, that don't have uh, control posts and things like that but I'd be wary of making big claims about that kind of military intervention. Diplomatic intervention is another thing, of course. You have opposed discourses. You have that, well, I can only describe him as a right-wing nutter, which is Alvaro Uribe, the ex-president, who actually doesn't want the peace process to happen and who is actually calling for international intervention into Venezuela. Uh, You know, I think he's implying military intervention. Uh, But let's call him the extreme wing of that kind of discourse. But I don't see any situation in which the Colombian military would intervene in Venezuela unless Colombia was doing a counter-response to a Venezuelan intervention in Colombia.
1: How does Santos measure up against Uribe?
4: Oh, well, he's the one who's driven the peace process. They became enemies, even though he was the Minister of Defence under Uribe. Santos, I think, has probably got a few things to answer for, being having been Minister of Defence... When you're Minister of Defence, you know, the buck kind of stops with you with everything that the army does. But uh, he, he wants to badge himself as different, and he also, like most presidents or prime ministers even in this country, uh, they want to go down a history of remembered as having done one really good thing. So he's pushing up the, the peace process, so that's where he's diametrically opposed to Uribe.
1: And what prospects are there for this peace process? It's been going on for quite a while now.
4: Oh, they're excellent. Well, they, they have actually got a formally declared sp- uh, ceasefire, which no one believed would really happen.
1: What are the terms that they're looking at?
4: Well, they want the Colombian FARC. This is just with the FARC guerrillas, right? This is the FARC, uh, the most important guerrilla group in Colombia. The agreement is such that it's expected that within the next six months the FARC will lay down their arms and they'll demobilise And The way they'll do that is... The Colombian government is going to set up 23 kind of hamlets and eight other, I don't know, know—they must be kind of like farm areas in rural areas. These areas will be safe havens, and it'll give the guerrilla groups a chance to demobilize, hand in their weapons, and then assimilate back into Colombian society, but under protection. So even the Colombian military are not allowed to fly any lower than 5,000 feet over these encampments. And these encampments are where the formal process of demobilisation under the uh, administration of the United Nations, or the, administ- the United Nations will be there observing these encampments, that everything goes okay. And there's all kinds of conditions put on those encampments about who can leave and enter and under what circumstances. And so that's to give the guerrillas of the FARC a sense of security and trust in going through the demobilisation process. But so far what's happened is a ceasefire, which is everyone, even my most cynical friends uh, who are cynical about the Colombian government's motives, agree that this is a watershed moment, but now we need to see the finalisation of the peace accord signed. And there are numerous fine-grained issues issues that are still not completely resolved for that signing.
1: And will there be a demobilisation of the paramilitary?
4: Ah, well, here's a, here's a sticking point. Uh, supposedly, uh, they've, certainly the most, the, the most outrageous one, uh, I think it was the UAC, they supposedly have already demobilised, but from friends I know who work in the field in Colombia, one Welsh friend of mine in particular, a lot of those demobilised paramilitaries have insinuated themselves into local councils in urban areas and so forth, where they'll probably continue on as a kind of a a covert mafia. And then, you know, the whole thing is, with these paramilitaries, they're kind of a law unto themselves. I'm not sure that they have the same command structure that the FARC guerrillas do, such that if the FARC hierarchy say, we are demobilizing, we are signing the peace courts, we are satisfied that our concerns have been met, I don't know that the same can happen with the paramilitaries and with the paramilitaries it's not just their counter-reaction their claim of counter-reaction against guerrilla activity they have amassed wealth and they control land and they're not going to give that up in a hurry right and they are the ones who are most opposed in many ways to the peace process because the peace process involves reparation returning of lands to dispossessed people and they've already sent out messages saying, if this, if you push this too far, we will start killing people. So in the answer to your question, no, it does not involve the full demobilisation of the paramilitaries. They're a very dark force in Colombia.
1: And that's often the sticking point, isn't it? Because you've got, in Latin America, a peace plan. It does revolve around land and land distribution to the people who should have it. If it's not going to happen there, what's going to happen to the three or five million people who have been displaced and dispossessed?
4: Well, that's the $50 question, isn't it? Look, look, some of these land returns are going to happen and I think they're already happening, right? So that's going to happen. The question is how much and if people are given their land back, can they actually go and occupy the land? By which I mean, will they be exposed to... Raiding parties by these paramilitary types, driving them off again. That's that's the whole thing, right? One thing is legal ownership, another thing is de, de, de facto control. This is where the issue arises. So it, it's it's a sad, frustrating, complex situation. It's not going to even when even if a peace accord is solved, there's still the ALN guerrilla group that need to come to the party. They've started, um, you know, uh, talking with the government, you know, about what would be the terms of us actually beginning peace talks as well, and then demobilising the paramilitaries fully, and I, I don't believe they ever will be fully demobilised within the next 10 years, you know, and then, then the drug trade, which is ongoing, and the drug train has murky links to the paramilitary, but also to the FARC, not so much necessarily in trafficking, but FARC allowing drug activity to continue in areas that they control, basically. Now, So there's a complex of problems there, Signing peace accords is not going to solve all that, but it's the first major step. And it's hope—it's to be hoped that if a lasting peace accords can be signed with the FARC, the ALN will eventually demobilize, and then intense focus and pressure can be brought onto these paramilitary groups to desist their activities, even after they've claimed to have demobilized. So this is going to be a long, messy process. I think there will still be bloodshed, unfortunately, There will be revenge killings going on for quite a while. Uh, Colombians have a long memory. Everyone in Colombia, just about everyone, knows someone who has suffered one way or the other under the violence over the last 50 or 60 years.
1: Just finally, how has the society, in a general sense, survived that 50, 60 years of war, the popular culture, literature... The, the different people, the, the indigenous people, the Indians, the, the Spanish, the African descendants, what well, is left? What is still there of that culture of Colombia? Well, once Columbia? again, it's
4: a multiplicity of answer. Colombia, like like most countries, especially Latin American countries, is very heterogeneous, a, very, a variety of cultures and ethnicities and even religions now. People have survived as best they can. Unfortunately, see, to understand Latin America ever since the wars of independence and then the setting up of formal political parties mid-19th century in most countries, you have this kind of idea of horizontal democracy where one vote counts for every person, but then that's cut through vertically by patron-client relationships where people gravitate towards and cling to people who've got power and influence and muscle and that provides them a safe haven, whereas formal democracy is often just a a, a rhetoric and an abstraction for a lot of people. So people have been clinging to those patron-client relationships. But also I noticed when I lived in Columbia for three years when I was a doctoral student, uh, sorry, a master's student in the late 80s, that trust was being broken down between ordinary Colombians. And even in the neighbourhoods where I lived, people were often suspicious of each other. And that was because no one knew who was lined up with who or who was linked to whom. It's almost like that intangible thing we call civic virtue. We take it for granted but it exists. You don't even realize it's there often until it's broken down and then you realize what it was and that it takes a long time to rebuild community trust and civic virtue amongst all Colombians. So people are struggling on different levels and different speeds with that process, depending on, as you say, whether they're indigenous, Afro-descendant, middle-class people who are often targeted for kidnappings and extortion. They're the lucky ones. A lot of them have dual passports and homes in the United States or apartments, and they can move, but ordinary poor Colombians, the majority of people, don't have that. So they establish tight neighbourhood networks which provides a uh, a mechanism for survival.
1: Thanks very much for today. Okay, And that was Professor Geoffrey Browett from University in Sydney talking about Colombia.
4: Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, Sunday 14th of August. Brunswick Town Hall, Wurundjeri Land, 233 Sydney Road, Brunswick, 10am to 5pm, free entry. Stalls, workshops, films, food, childcare and kids' space available all day. For more information, go to amelbournebookfair.org. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. Arm yourself with ideas. A
1: 3CR supporter. I'm speaking with Professor Bassem Dali from the University of Adelaide and the topic he's discussing at the moment is Israel's ultimate plans and why the current government will not sign a peace deal anytime soon. What about the role of the Palestinian Authority?
7: The Palestinian Authority uh, a lot of people blame it for some of what's happening in there. I think uh, they had every good intention. Arafat at the time, when it established the Palestinian Authority, is to basically have a, a credible um, sort of voice that represents the will of the Palestinians through a democratic means. So they went on from uh, a revolutionary or freedom fighters, if you want, to um, a governing uh, body. And unfortunately, the deals that they signed and the brokers um, uh, that uh, helped him, which is the U.S. in particular, have basically made lots of mistakes in the way such that um, they were negotiating good faith thinking that um, by 98 uh, they will have their own independence. That was the idea. As 93, we signed Oslo. There's a process going to happen by 98 that everything is going to be all right and we'll have our independence. Obviously, that didn't happen. And hence, whatever uh, measures they agreed on uh, as an interim measures basically became permanent measures uh, uh, 23 years later. So what's something that was supposed to last for five years now, it's been for 23 years. I guess um, they are uh, trapped, I think is the best word. Uh, A lot of people call them lots of other names, but I think trapped is is the best uh, uh, description. Uh, I don't doubt uh, their um, patriotism and their desire for the people to be free, but uh, in, in the way the system is set, and their dependency on foreign aid, and uh, and all foreign aid comes with uh, uh, conditions, if you want. I think their hands are tied and they can't do much, in a way. And this is why I feel that uh, those supporters around the world uh, uh, sh- should basically uh, advocate for Palestine and advocate for their uh, governments to take a fair stand on this issue rather than sort of uh, blindly support Israel.
1: But the trouble is those world powers whether they're small or large are supporting israel and they have been forever is it up to the people of the world to support the palestinians through efforts like bds which worked in south africa
7: yes absolutely i think um, i mean uh, here in australia um, the government has been I, I call it actually active participant in the conflict and uh, people get a little bit annoyed by that but uh, and i preface that by saying that, uh, well, active participation means that uh, you give him political support uh, internationally, you uh, vote uh, against resolutions to solve the conflict. Only last December, the coalition government changed its voting in the UN General Assembly on the issue of a peaceful resolution of the question of Palestine. And you wonder why the Australian government would abstain from a resolution. On the peaceful resolution of the question of palestine what message do you get out of that you, you don't want a peaceful resolution is it i mean i think here in australia we do have um, a lot of work to do in order to change the government's policy on uh, on on this and we're not asking more than actually a fair-minded policy we we say australia bef- believes in fergo australia has an uh, obligation because Australia has divided Palestine in 1947, you know, where we participated in the UNSCOP, uh, which basically divided, uh, came up with a partition plan in 1947. And later in 49, early 49, we we were one of the first countries to recognize Israel, but we have never recognized Palestine. So although the Australian government provides some aid to the Palestinian Authority and do some humanitarian work in there. But uh, I think... um, Uh, There have been lots of uh, instances where um, the government have shown uh, disregard to the plight of the Palestinians, to their human rights, even to applying uh, the Fourth Geneva Convention to the uh, occupied Palestinian authorities, which is uh, really, I mean, the basics of human rights uh, are being deprived of. In other words, they're sending a message to us uh, that you could do with the Palestinians, whatever you like, and, and there's no international law that can protect them, which basically is not the message. Uh, an Australian government doesn't matter which, which persuasion should actually be sending anywhere around the world, in my view.
1: And also there's a message there when Australian politicians go on these study tours to Israel.
7: That's right. I'm the executive of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network and uh, uh, this is one of the issues that we took up this, um, uh, over the last 12 months. In that these visits, actually, uh, people may know that uh, Israel is uh, the country most visited uh, by our politicians by a factor of two or three. Mostly, it's instigated by uh, local the lobbies, lobbying here, and also uh, they are the guests of the Israeli government. I would usually meet with them before they leave, and I'll see them after they come back, and you could see how brainwashed they are. When they go and come back, in a way, and uh, obviously they selectively take him to places and convince him that uh, that Israel is uh, is uh, you know, fighting to survive and that you know the Palestinian front to they see and all this uh, bullocks and they don't actually see the suffering of the Palestinians under the occupation and the illegal occupation of the Palestinian territories. So, what do we urge politicians to do? that if they are going to uh, that region to actually spend equal time in, in Israel and Palestine and that we were more happy to arrange for them to visit uh, refugee camps and to talk to NGOs and to the Palestinian Authority to actually get a proper picture about what's happening there rather than just go and see uh, or listen to the Israeli propaganda and come back.
1: Has anyone taken up that offer?
7: Well, uh, two three already and we're really feeling um, good about it. it it's um, the lobby pays for these trips to go there, and they're not happy that uh, the uh, visitors uh, want to go and see the Palestinian side in a way. But um, I think um, we're more convinced that politicians gonna condition their uh, their trip to actually also seeing the other side. and we're convinced also that if they come with us for two, three days, they would actually see a different picture of that conflict than what the Israelis want to uh, want to show them in a way.
1: Perhaps you could sign up some of the politicians to the APAN study tours where they'll see the real issues in the Middle East there.
7: That's right. Uh, APAN tours um, happen twice a year and, uh, and uh, they have been very successful and many of those who went in there uh, testify that actually they learned so much out of what's, uh, what's happening about the whole part of the conflict rather than just you know a small snippet of it. And especially that we start with the refugee camps in, in Lebanon because um, without solving the refugee issues, you can't solve the, uh, the issue of Palestine. Uh, the UN has more than 5 million uh, Palestinian refugees registered, and uh, in Lebanon there's at least 400,000 who are um, basically permanent residents uh, who don't have much right in a way, and uh, yeah, want to live freely in, in somewhere where they actually have a proper passport and can travel and can do things in a way. So the, the tours then uh, go to the West Bank, and uh, occasionally we were able to get into Gaza as well, and uh, that was quite an experience for a lot of people. Really,
1: but they make sure they don't let people in there on a regular basis.
7: Well, it's um, you know they they make it uh, really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, we go and visit sort of NGOs in there mostly, and through them we get our visas. But um, it's so arbitrary; it uh, it can change any time. You could have a visa, and you could go to the crossing and just refuse your entry anyway, because they can. And uh, if you happen to have uh, a name which, uh, uh, you know, has uh, any uh, sounding, an in, in Arab in, in a way, of, uh, you, you actually will never have any, uh, um, any chance of getting into Gaza. So things are a little bit hard to get into Gaza these days,
1: yeah. Well, for people listening to you about some, apart from the Apan tours, what can people do?
7: I think making our voice heard is important. Uh, you, you touched before about uh, the BDS in particular. And I think um, this is one of the most uh, effective resistance strategies that uh, the Palestinians have called for. And uh, in comparison to South Africa, it actually we almost uh, you know it's, it's almost been ten years now since the Palestinians called for it. But uh, uh, in comparison, it's almost, it almost took uh, South African 25 years to get where we are today. A lot of people are uh, not buying Israeli products. A lot of people are boycotting Israeli performances. A lot of people are making their uh, voice heard. And uh, I think it's an effective tool. It's a nonviolent tool. It's basically a consumer choice. And we're saying we're not going to accept israel it, it, into the as an equal partner to the international community unless they are willing to abide by the international community rules and the international law and the un resolutions and there's no wonder that the israeli government uh, is farting bts you know tooth and nail they have a whole special department under the um, prime minister's office to actually try and fight it and the way they say are gonna fart it is through basically uh vilification and deceit. They're going to call everyone who sort of uh, opt not to buy Israeli products as anti-Semitic, as if you know, uh, a standing for international law, standing for human rights, that would make you uh, an anti semitic And obviously, this is an old-tired charge that uh, has no foundation whatsoever. And when when true anti-Semitic is happening in there, it will actually listen to that, listen the extent of it, because it has been used and abused of things that actually have nothing to do with anti-Semitism. If Israel doesn't want to be called out on its actions, then it should sort of end the occupation, give the Palestinians their rights under international law. And there won't, won't be any boycott. The, the, the irony is and the hypocrisy is that Israel is more than happy to call for boycott of Iran, of um, uh, the rest of the world, boycott um, North Korea and put restrictions on it and so on, and, and, and Iraq before that, and yet when it comes to Israel. Suddenly, Israel is immune from this tactic uh, because the U.S. has its friend, in a way, or Australia, for that matter. Now, there's a risk in that uh, the lobby is trying around the world to actually try and uh, legislate to make the BDS uh, illegal. That's why it has failed in all aspects that you could think about. Many of the decisions have been overturned uh, both in uh, in france uh, and uh, and in the u k w- although even President Obama have signed something uh, which uh, again didn't take effect so far. there's calls here in Australia for this to happen, and uh, we have made it clear to both government and the opposition that uh, we're gonna fight this to the end is that we' more more than happy to break the law if it actually be introduced because we feel that it's discriminatory. We feel it's hypocritical, and we feel that uh, it is our right to express our opinion about uh, the um, brutality of the occupation, about uh, the uh, need for Palestinians to have their rights and freedom. It's about time, after so many years, for people to live sort of free like any other people around the world.
1: Okay. Thanks very much.
7: No, it's my pleasure.
1: And that was Professor. Asim Ali, he's a Palestinian-Australian talking about the BDS campaign. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Coming up is Done By Law.